Hello, this is Matt Hale bringing you the Art Monthly Talk Show on Resonance FM. It's also on DAB Radio and on the Art Monthly website events page where there is a full archive of programmes going back over 10 years, I think now, which you can listen to for free. Um, On the Art Monthly website, you can also subscribe to Art Monthly magazine itself for £33 direct debit. £10 extra gets you a digital subscription as well, which has a full searchable archive, which is extremely useful for researching and finding out more about people you read about in the magazine and following particular writers. Um, You can also have that on its own if you wish to for £8.99 per quarter. Now, the magazine is the basis of the talk show programme. So what we do is have the writers come on the show and discuss texts published in the current issue. And the current issue we're dealing with today is the October 2020 issue number 440. And we have two guests. We have Adam Herdman and Mark Wilshire. Now, um, Mark Wilshire will be discussing the absence of presence. That's a feature he's... Um, has in the magazine. And then before him, we'll have Adam Herman, who'll be discussing Elizabeth Price's Slow Dan. Adam, thank you for coming on the Art Monthly Talk Show. Welcome. Hi, Matt. Thank you for having me on. It's lovely to uh, see you, even though it's only remotely from the distance. <laughs> yes, yeah. it is. Um, now, tell me, um, you've reviewed the show. Um, mm-hmm. Where is it? So the show is, um, yeah, quite interestingly, uh, organised by an organisation called Art Angel, and they their sort of tagline is putting extraordinary art in unexpected places. So yeah, quite a good place to start is to tell um, people where it's at, which is in a sort of 19th century um, assembly hall, assembly rooms on Borough Road in South southeast London. Um, they've occupied that uh, 19th century space. Uh, it's kind of a cavernous hall, which really, I think, suits the material of uh, Slow Dan's. It's three, a trilogy of films by Elizabeth Price, her first show in London, her first major solo show in London since winning the Turner Prize in 2012. Um, and bringing it to this space, I mean, first of all, it gives it a, a sense of um, occasion because it's it's not your usual art institution. It's not a gallery show. It has a its own sort of singular sense of occasion because it's in this strange pop-up space. Uh, and the space itself is big, 19th century cavernous hall, um, feels almost Masonic, which really suits the, uh, the, the films themselves because they are placed on screens high up above the viewers. That it gives them a sense of power and authority um, and also a kind of immersive feel, which, which is good because the films tell stories, but they try not to do so in such a a linear way and in, in more of an immersive and all-encompassing way and I think that uh, between them Art Angel and Elizabeth Price have chosen a brilliant space I'm actually not sure what the process of choosing the space was but it does it does really work with the films yeah they often use um Art Angel spaces that are not standard as you say <laughs> is it is it like a kind of you mean like a brick interior I mean is it rough and ready is it very um smartly mm. done what's it like I mean in that sense so it's it's a kind of a hall, and it has the, the sorts of the sort of eye and nay entrances a bit. So it's you you enter through one uh, door up a staircase into one area, and then down a separate one once you're finished, and out another door. Um, but no, the inside, the interior space has been uh, darkened. Uh, it's pretty much pitch black. You're sharing it with other viewers, 
um, but it's it's sort of any space, whatever, but it's huge and cavernous. And then uh, and then the screens are arranged around you in a sort of cyclical way. Now, I, I, I wanted just to say that it was previously at um, the Whitworth Manchester, this trilogy, mm-hmm. uh, they, that she had a show there um, earlier in 2020, um, started actually uh, late 2019. But it, there it was called A Long Memory because it had other works as well, and um, also a collection of photographs um, taken of uh, mines by someone else completely that she, she'd sort of selected to have um, with her. I think it was by um, Albert Walker, his name was. Yes. Uh, a guy who was made redundant by Thatcher. And, and, mm. But this, this is, um, in, in London, is just the Slow Dance trilogy of films. Am I right in saying that? Yeah, so it's three films, um, one of them entitled Teachers, one of them entitled Felt Tip, uh, and the third entitled Cole, um, which is spelled um, strangely kind of phonetically K-O-H-L, but it is a nod towards the word coal, and it's interesting you bring up mining from her previous shows, because this film in particular uh, expands on the theme and the imagery of mining. It has lots of, during the film, it has lots of the... um, the shaft winches above mining shafts inverted and subverted, turned upside down. So your sense of space is familiar, but defamiliarized. They look alien or like something from area 51, maybe human structures that are to do with something otherworldly, which, which fits because the, the story of the film tells of uh, visitants, sinister visitants who crawl up through subterranean spaces. And it's very dystopian and kind of scary, but, uh, and uses, uses the, um, the sort of modern dystopian feel of Thatcher closing the mines, the, the, what had been something so familiar and such an important sense of labour and self for parts of this country being suddenly ripped away, I think that that kind of uncanniness, the film wants to play with that. But what it does try and do is discover a, a humanity um, within that. Uh, so it's not all sinister and it's not all difficult. And so, for example, through that film... Throughout that film, there's this um, the theme of communication, mining workers in the, in the spaces communicating with each other. And in one instance, they communicate through the water which, flooded, which was flooding the shafts subterranean. And the way that the transcript of the film puts it is, sound carries well through mine water. You can have a laugh in Wath at a joke cracked in Acton, the old saying goes. And there are many old tales of singing right into the flooded system, transmitting melody and rhythm through it for great simultaneous dancing events. So as, as the film constructs this fiction of alien visitors and uh, turns images upside down and calls on lots of strange um, and quite uh, sinister imagery, it also has this sense of human connection, sharing jokes, and the films are all funny. They all play with, with fact, fiction, and, and humour to bring across kind of a moving, a moving and funny message in the end, even though they deal with what feels like waste material. Um, and raw material. And this, you mentioned the Albert Walker photographs, they're included in the exhibition catalogue, which, which is called ah, a okay. cache. Yeah, Elizabeth Price calls it a cache, calling on imagery of, of internet yeah. search histories. Um, and she almost mines those raw materials herself and brings them up to the surface to, to make the film. So in that, in that mining film particularly, that's an important image. That's the one with the, with the two monitors turned sideways, or is that felt tip? That's felt tip, which um, okay, that's is also very interesting. Yeah, um, talk about, let's talk about that one because um, that does. If I, I think that had some mining connection 
in it that basically there's a top and bottom monitor mm-hmm. portrait mm-hmm. portrait with a small gap yes. isn't there between them yes and the, and the bottom one is she talks about representing the the cash or, or basically what is sort of out of sight mm-hmm. but used and drawn from as information and then the top half is the executive level yes yeah yeah that's absolutely that, right something to do with the walker gallery where it was shown pr- at the very beginning this trilogy was shown in the walker mm-hmm. um in america and there was something to do with the architecture there that gave her this idea of having splitting it and there being a hierarchy and a, an above mm-hmm. and below because i think there used to be offices up above or something and they took them down and she, she, she connected with that in some way anyway oh that's interesting that it has that site sort of site specific well uh, apparently, apparently that's that was what oh. triggered her, th- her thinking wow. doing okay. that I didn't know that, but in this space, it works perfectly well as well. The, the, as I've already mentioned, the cavernous space allows the films to sometimes show you information, especially with felt tip, which is, um, as you say, arranged with two monitors turned on their sides so that they make a tall, thin, vertical screen together. Um, it allows for some of the information to appear at eye level, some of it to appear below eye level, and some of it to be way up above you and speak down on you. Um, which obviously has interesting resonances in terms of power and uh, modes of address. But it does, it draws on the same mining imagery, um, digging down into the depths and drawing it back up. Uh, but in, in a sort of metaphorical sense, you're right to do with data mining, which is an important image always with Elizabeth Price because she uses, um, she uses research and the idea of discovery in catalogues or archives um, as one of her main sources of, of narrative thrust, but she always complicates it and makes it funny and sort of jokes at the expense of academics who do that kind of research. But in Felt Tip, the other way it works, which is very interesting, and you're right to point it out, is that it tells Felt Tip tells the story of men's neckties as uh, a symbol of power from all the way back from sort of Etonian, Harrovian times where uh, public school boys, posh school boys would walk into the best, most powerful jobs or positions in the country, which is to a certain extent still true. But these ties entered the workplace and office space as a symbol of that kind of education and class. Um, and through this film, the history of them being adopted by uh, non-male people and people from other class strata uh, and subverted, so truncated into a square bottom tie, which is almost like a castration image, or they become the symbol of tongues to give voice to other communities they're punk they're shortened and played with and, and it's yeah it's a real really good sense of how a symbol can be subverted inverted or used as a, as a kind of power tool as well it's a great it's a great film it's really funny as well did, sorry i was listening but you did you say that the the ties that i remember had um technological shapes like from from mm-hmm new technology that was coming so they actually yeah. uh, and and i i understand that um there was a connection to what, what, the jacquard loom what i'm saying is that the ties are woven and mm-hmm. and originally that um method of of making patterns w- began to be done by punched cards in mm-hmm. the loo- in in the looms and 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 then that actually led to important step in the history of computer hardware so yes. so that and then so she's she's aware of this Liz, mm-hmm. elizabeth price and 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 so i think she's she's also making a connection through just using textile isn't she um yes yeah. to, to the history of, of, the, of the computer as well i mean it's subtle it's very subtle admittedly but it's, it's subtle and it's i mean it's about centers of power i guess and um 
we all know now that who, whoever holds the data holds the power. And so locating that and almost suggesting the patterns that you mentioned, they start to look on the film screen uh, almost like microchip, microchips or neural yes. pathways uh, or computer chips, sure. Um, and I think that, again, that's saying that in our day and age, that sort of pattern is the locus of, of a certain power or a certain sense of uh, info. Yeah, and yeah, we can't, that's a glass ceiling we can't get past. Our computer screens are a no. little bit. Would you talk a bit about the teachers um, one, uh, which, which is a, a sort of more to do with academia, I think. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You are. So, um, if the if the mining metaphor scans into this film as well, it, it's a sense of research and again digging back into a past to discover a future. Um, and I think this this of the three films is probably the most satirical. It has it has a target. Um, and Elizabeth Price, who has worked in academia herself, uh, yeah, she's a professor, isn't she? She's a professor. Yes, yeah, so she's. This is a little bit self-directed. It's sending sending up several institutions or institutions of knowledge. Um, I think the art elite is also part part of the target here. So what happens in teachers is that we get the the history of a group of academics or intellectuals who give up speaking. Uh, and they communicate between themselves by sibilant utterances, the film says, uh, and a system of movements, uh, dancing, which the phrase slow dance gives the exhibition its title, Slow Dance. But in this instance, as in as in throughout, um, Elizabeth Price is very playful with sound. The exhibition sounds incredible, by the way. You walk in and each of the films, the soundtracks to the films are voiceovers, but modulated, digitised voices that, that speak rhythmically uh, and also are kind of accompanied by music or soundscapes um, and it makes it really compelling. It makes it really rhythmical. Are they asexual, are they asexual by the way? Like, can you tell us they're women time, or men? Most of the time they seem to suggest that they're female voice, especially in felt tip. It's a, it's suggested right. that it's a woman telling a gendered history, a history in which gender is quite important. And in teachers, it's a little bit more abstract. Uh, the voices are very deadpan, um, in, a, in a way that we're kind of familiar with now, computerized voices um, from train stations to text to speak. Yes. Uh, train station announcements to text to speak on computers will always be, um, yeah, that, that modulated digital voice without much mood. And that allows for quite funny instances of layered narrators with digital voices disagreeing with each other slightly half a beat later or um, something spoken where there's a context that suggests that you should be not taking this at face value makes it kind of funny because it's delivered deadpan and without the intonations that usually suggest humour. But yeah, so throughout throughout teachers, the idea of academics speaking in an esoteric language that descends essentially into gibberish is uh, <laughs> um, is explored and it's very very funny. But sound is very critical, as you say, to to, to, to Elizabeth yeah. Price, and you say I, I believe she was. Um, in involved with music herself prior to was she in bands or something she was in a very cool sort of um indie riot girl band in the 80s short-lived called Tallulah Gosh they're very cool but yeah she's a musician and she makes she the electronic musical sounds and the rhythm of the language in her um in her films is very very important um yeah so I refer to it in the review as a social poet which I think is uh it's important to think about the yeah. ways in which the stories are told poetically. We will we will talk about the, the poetry factor because I think it is critical. Um, just one one little side note. Um, 
in the teachers, do they, mm-hmm. do they deal with, does she deal with gowns? You know, the kind of thing that um, academics wear, like professorial mm-hmm. gowns and things, because it, it, funny enough, on the website for Art Angel, there's a mm-hmm. link to her own, to Elizabeth's website, where she's got three footnotes, and they're, mm-hmm. they're short videos, which are footnotes, and one of them is called Super Tunica, and it's basically, it is actually the most academic thing or, or educational thing, I think perhaps would be a better word, that she presents as an artwork, because it actually literally just gives the history of tunics, and, and mm-hmm. the other ones are coal, literally spelt C-O-A-L, right. and the stiletto, all, all three of which I think appear in the different videos, but she's got yes. these footnote videos which explain mm-hmm. more, which I really liked actually, but it's not, I don't think it's available in the exhibition when you go, is it? No, I think she's quite interested in that. And again, I think this is sort of a joke that um, people like you and I who are, who are thoroughly interested could lose ourselves completely in the in the sort of twisting mind shafts of her, of her yes. academic sort of it, material. We could go to those footnotes, we could go to the exhibition catalogue and she, I mean, it, it's very well researched, but I think she would find it funny that, that we would deep dive on it. Yeah, but, but it actually, it makes me almost think of, of the way, uh, I hadn't told this before, but, but bands have... Um, well, you, you mentioned there's a very thick catalogue, for instance. And, yes. And, 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 and I know that, so the, and there's these little extra videos on, on, the, on the Art Angel website, mm-hmm. with li- link to her website. I mean, there's other stuff too, but there's a kind of, um, and, and there's a lot of people involved institutionally in supporting this work. And, 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 yes. this, and, and, and I mean, really quite a few film and video umbrella, Art Angel, the, the, the Manchester um, Whitworth Gary, a number of others, and and of course the Walker, and and they're all. If you think of it like a a, a, bag, a big band or some mm-hmm. sort of, it's a bit, it's a bit like a pop star who has all this support. It, <laughs> it, and I know she's not, but it's kind of interesting to me that there is a, there's a sort of um. Well, that's my point really. I, I won't go on, but um, but the poet poetry thing because mm-hmm. I we, we were speaking before about this aspect of. Uh, how, although, say, the teachers is a is a to dealing with academia, of which she is herself one. The work itself, however brilliantly researched, is not academically presented. Not at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that um, occupying a certain space, which I think is shared with poetry. I write poetry myself. I'm a poet. Yes, I was going to say that's that's why I wanted to ask you, you particularly. <laughs> So maybe I'm biased. Maybe that means I read things in a certain way. Um, well, no, I, I thought so too, though. So, and I'm yeah, not. Okay, good. I'm glad to know that. I'm not <laughs> that. <laughs> yeah, so I, I felt that the films very deliberately occupy a space, which I think is, is a space occupied by poems as well. It's a helpful way to think about poems, I think, is that you, you can't comfortably call them fiction, but you certainly can't call them non-fiction either because they don't really deal particularly in fact or um, reportage. I mean, they can, but... The space they occupy isn't fictional and it's it's not comfortably non-fiction either. Yeah. And I think that with these films, Elizabeth Price is always telling a story and certain details of that story are invented um, in every case. But the majority of the raw materials and the source materials she uses are verifiably actual and they're from history. Um, but And like you say, if, if you want to, you can engage with these films um, after the fact in a way that is research-based, is uh, layered, is complex. You'll discover new things all the time. You'll be sent through footnotes or allusions to other places and you could read endlessly. But you're right, they're presented in a way which um, 
Yeah, shares with poetry, two things, I think, is uh, one, this sense of being halfway between fact and fiction, and the second one being rhythmic and musical. Um, the speech is modulated to to emphasize rhythm. It's it's sort of flexes in and out of electronic music, uh, to, which keeps you engaged, but it also calls to attention the mediums, the media through which meaning can be communicated. Um, and I think that factual meaning in an academic sense is, is one thing and all very good. But if you find an artistic medium or a poetic medium to communicate information, through which to communicate information. I think you can say something that's true without necessarily needing recourse to fact. And in some ways that can communicate with people uh, a hell of a lot better um, than other types of communication. And I think that Elizabeth Price does that incredibly well. Yeah. I mean, I mean, one wanted to say that it, that's, there's a difference between art yeah. and, and, uh, and other ways of getting ideas across and and it has to be different otherwise why have another name uh, and uh, but also it's 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 an essential other way in in my humble opinion <laughs> but yeah so uh, is, there, is there anything that we've not said that we wish we had said from before <laughs> i mean I, I i don't mean there are there, i've got various booklets in front of me um i i was interested in in the in the way in manchester there was more work and older work of hers plus other work by other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm glad to hear the catalogue, um, which I haven't actually seen. It, it kind of connects to some of that stuff that she had in Whitworth. And I, and yeah. I, I, I look forward to getting hold of a copy of that. It, uh, she, she works, I do believe with um, uh, a, a, a cinematographer, um, because I do think to myself that the, the complications of her work technically are must be pretty high. I mean, and one very important part of it, which she did talk about, which I, I, we, I think we did mention before, but not in, not, is, is the layering of the video program. When you're you, when she's making her films, mm-hmm. she says she has millions, literally, of files, which are kind of in this. Stag- stacked form in the program, and there's the top timeline which we see in the end. Mm-hmm into mm-hmm. which she puts things. And yes. I really did like that um, connection because within the actual work, that sort of thing is, hap- is presented as well. The form of layering and this idea of strata and, and the cache, as you mentioned before. But actually, when she makes the work, that's really part of her process, isn't it? It absolutely is. And I think it's really important to recognise that, I guess. I mean, you, you don't want to suggest that art is reliant on a bunch of prior knowledge or um, a bunch of research after the fact. Like, you, you hope that the piece will communicate uh, in itself at the time. And I think these films do because they get across the fact that there is this uh, impossible, infinite um, cache of information and data behind it, um, which, to be honest, is, is both a formal um, consideration of the works, yeah. how they are constructed, but it's very, very important to, to what they mean. I think that if there is a kind of core meaning... Um, or if there's a core kind of target of these works, particularly in slowdowns, it, it has it, it has, or is interested in our contemporary sense of being completely overwhelmed by imagery, completely yeah. overwhelmed by sound, directionless and infinite all over the place, which can be used against us. Look at Cambridge Analytica and data mining and data farming, but or it can be used to just completely exhaust people. And but yes. then I think where. 
Where Elizabeth Price, what she shares with someone like Hito Steyl, for example, is that you then think, hey, here we are, we're immersed in this medium completely. It's almost like we're in a mine shaft that's been flooded. But what can we do? We can sing through it. We can make jokes through that medium. Sound yeah. carries well through mine water. Yeah. Um, and I think that it can be a space through art, even though it's overwhelming and dangerous and sinister, this kind of overwhelming data and imagery soup that we live in can be a medium for song and dance and social activity, activism uh, and self-expression. And I think if Elizabeth Price is trying to say anything uh, very directly with these films, it, it's something like that. <laughs> let's, le- let's leave it on that really nicely put um, description. Uh, and, and thank you so much for coming on, Adam Herdman. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, the, 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 You're on the Art Monthly talk show. That was Adam Herdman. We were discussing Elizabeth Price's work, Slow Dan's. Thank you, Adam. And now I'm joined by Mark Wilshire, an artist um, living in Norwich. That's what we have at the bottom of the feature. Um, hello, Mark. Hello. Um, would you like to add anything to that small description? Because I think you might be a bit more than that. Uh, they may be the most important. No, I'm just going to leave it at that. That's, that's fine. Fine, good. They're obviously the most important things for you, which is yeah. it's lovely to hear. And... Um, uh, I, I think you first wrote for Art Monthly. Um, if, I, if our records are correct, I mean, I just went through our archive, which is online, mm. as listeners will know, because I already mentioned it at the beginning of the programme, at the top of the programme, as they say. Um, in 20, 2001, I think. It was, yeah, it was 20 years ago now, pretty much, wasn't it? Hey, I think you wrote about um, David Shrigley. I did, but actually, I think I remember my first piece, coincidentally, was a review of a Liz Price show. Well, you know, that's weird because I looked it up and I thought that's what it said and then I went to try and find it and I couldn't find it. Well, that's great because that's what we were just talking about, as you know, just prior to you coming on now. And and, and, and I'd said we'd been covering Art Monthly, um, had covered Liz Price for a long time. So that's great, really great to hear. It would have been a very different show to to her new work then. Yeah, I mean, she has developed in in interesting ways over over the years. I mean, sort of post-conceptualist with making objects which is interesting in relation to your feature which we're going to be talking about and i'll just mention to listeners again that we're we're going to be talking about mark's feature um in the art monthly october issue 2020 and it's it's named the absence of presence in in art monthly um and uh basically it it, it does involve an analysis of the the difference of well i don't want to generalize but it's basically the fact that liz Price used to make objects and then developed into what she does now which is mostly digital uh video work isn't it which which mm. however it's, it's complicated her work. we've just done all that <laughs> in the program mark to start will you begin by just telling us what what were the impetus for writing this feature was for you <clears throat> well um, I think I've had an interest for quite a while now, quite a few years in um, presence and particularly in the idea of what happens to presence online and presence in the digital world. I really, uh, I mean, I'm, what, what do you mean by presence? Just be really... I mean, I mean something just really simple, straightforward, the, the, the presence of an object, the presence of yourself, the presence of a, a person in a space. And it really comes from me being, I guess, a sculptor uh, to begin with originally um, and being an artist and being interested in those kind of things. So, and as the world has gone increasingly digital um, and we see so much online, we experience so much art online and we live our lives online, you know, um, I just become interested in this question of, of what has happened to that relationship between 
between the, the presence of the, the feeling of being with something and encountering something, seeing something through the screen. Uh, so and, then, and COVID has affected, yeah, things absolutely. Yeah, it, that re- really kind of just really amplified the whole the whole question. It really when we, we suddenly found all the galleries were shut down and closed, it was impossible to visit anything, um, and all we could do was see exhibitions online. That really just made me start to think about this question a bit more uh, specifically, and I thought I'd try and explore those ideas by, by writing. You know, I, th- I think it's very interesting, this word amplify, just, just to, to, clar- to make it really clear, because you were thinking about this before, and COVID has amplified that feeling or interest in, yeah. in these... Well, it really amplified what, what all galleries have had to do. I mean, before um, the, the lockdown, the pandemic, all galleries sell work online. All galleries exhibit work online and have, have, have images of their exhibitions online. Uh, you know, and they, they commercial galleries sell work uh, online as well. Um, and it was kind of an, an extra string to their bow and another way of reaching the market, I guess, or another way of reaching their audience for, for sort of non, non-profit galleries. But then it, that just became so much more important for them when they, their physical spaces had to shut. And so you saw... As, as has been written about previously, very, very quickly, um, galleries putting on um, videos of their exhibitions, walkthroughs, yeah. um, um, whole uh, massive bundles of photographs, 360-degree virtual reality, <laughs> click-through exhibitions, yes. and all, all that kind of stuff. And I, and I spent, you know, like many people, I spent the first month or two of lockdown sort of gorging on all that stuff and, and kind of enjoying it. And it, it, was, it was good to... Say, it was a positive uh, and a sort of yeah. negative, uh, sort of structure in your in your feature and we're in the neg- the positive side at the moment because it did feel <laughs> quite exciting and interesting at the beginning yeah yeah and it's good and it's great i mean it's in in many ways it's great for access uh, there's all sorts of galleries i can never get to and i can't you know, zip around the world yeah. at the drop of a hat and so it's great to be able to feel like you're kind of walking around a space in stockholm or or, or south africa or, or california you know and feel like you're kind of there um um, but at the same time, it, it's kind of a bit of a bit of an empty, fake sort of soulless experience as well. Yeah, it's sort of it's sort of almost almost a niggling guilt. In uh, I don't mean that's probably just my, my, yeah. Well, how many times did, how many times have you thought about an exhibition? So how many times have you thought about going to see an exhibition and you and then you looked it up online, seen some pictures, and then thought, oh, I don't need to bother going and seeing that now. I've seen that. Well, it's very interesting to hear you say that because that's one of the fears I have personally as an artist as well mm. of putting up too much work online mm. uh, you know do you show details only of works on instagram or do you put up whole works and if you have a show do you put up all the all the records of the show up yeah before the show started even when it's hung but that's right exactly open yeah because people will do exactly what you just said and and then they don't really know what they're missing and their decision is based on something wrong really that's right because with a still image or even with a, a even with a, a video kind of walkthrough you kind of get a sense of what it's like but it's not really the same as being there it, it really isn't the same as as um as seeing it and that was really highlighted for me why i think one of the first things i saw was the uh the big donald judd retrospective at, at moma in new york uh and they just put up kind of 80 installation images just just still photos which you could just click through and obviously there's such a a um a weird uh, paradox in looking at uh, artists like Donald Judd, these big, chunky physical sculptures in the form of just a carousel of, of, of nicely lit images. Um, 
that was, you know, it's, yeah, it's not the same, is it? No, and I'm sure we'll come back to, to, to him and another work from that form mm. of work, um, because you do in your feature later on. I mean, you, one thing you did say um, was putting aside for a moment the question of intended projection format and the scale of the cinema screen. That's quite early on in your piece, I believe, and, and what you, I think you're saying really there is that, you know, digital can be shown online, so, mm. you know, I can make a video, but actually... And I remember a time particularly when, and it still is the case, that the exact way a digitally produced film or video is shown within a space can be absolutely critical. Yeah, it's important to reading, even. And it's reading, definitely. And 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 the experience of it. The idea that you could just bang that on your computer... Exactly. Well, Liz Price is another great example of that. I mean, I, I hate to bring her back in again, but the way her work is shown is always very precise and very particular, isn't it? Yeah, uh, and there's many like her. Um, and, yeah. and, and, and that is something which you worry that because it's possible to put it online, more than a Donald Judd, say, yeah. you're going to lose even those subtleties within the digital art and and what you kind of gain some and you lose some don't you so you lose all those particularities of presentation which are important to to most artists i would say but you gain a massive amount of distribution you know and and millions more people can see it than will ever make their way to a particular space within a particular time slot well talking about um, distribution art fairs began to go online as part of their um, of, of being, they had actual spaces with actual work in the art fairs, but they also began to sell work and have the fairs online more. Yes. Yeah. And now with COVID um, lockdown sort of world situation, they, they, they're relying on that heavily. Yeah, yeah. And quite yeah. successfully, I think. Oh, yeah. And, and a lot of the work, a lot of the work that came out, and sort of new, newly commissioned work that came out in response to the lockdown was inevitably of this type. It was it was video work. It was kind of screen based work. Well, yeah, we, we, that's what we should talk about. Is because basically you you do begin by saying how you enjoyed some artists. Um, yeah, there was some really good stuff. There was there was one particular uh, series which I really enjoyed was this, this commission um, by the Onassis Foundation called Enter, and they commissioned a lot of artists. I don't know, fifty or sixty artists, um, and they they gave them each uh, I think one hundred and twenty hours to make a new piece of work under lockdown conditions. And that varied. Some people could, could get out of the house. Some people were trapped in their flats. Uh, and that made quite a lot of interesting work. I mean, again, 90% of it video or screen-based, I think. Yeah. Uh, some of it was kind of, uh, you know, traditional kind of traditional meta, I guess you'd call it. So uh, there was a piece by Molly Soda where you kind of go down a whole load of um, rabbit holes of links and links to nowhere and weird bits of found footage and film and so on. Uh, straightforward videos uh, and you know quite some really interesting performances. And I mentioned a, a nice um, performance piece by um, Kimberly uh, Bartosik. That's right, yeah. She's a choreographer and dancer. So she's a choreographer and she choreographed a kind of a, a weird little game dance thing that she could perform with her family in the flat, and then you can you're invited to perform it at home yourself by, by yeah. writing down on cards sort of the things that you've said during lockdown. Like, you know, oh, I wish you could get out of here. Or, um, oh, I remember, I remember, I wish I'd gone and eaten more ice creams or something like that. Yes. And you, I, think know, I hate you. I hate you. If I see your face again, I'm going to kill you. Yeah. You write down all these things on cards and um, with a set of actions and then you shuffle them all up and you have to 
um, go through them all and perform them ten times and in a in a rush and, and so on. So it was filmed in 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 the artist's home. Yeah, it's filmed in her flat, and and they, she invites people to to film their own version at home and and send yeah. them into her as well. Yeah, which is a, which is a nice leveling thing. Yeah. I think it's quite important. Um, and I was interested in in what you thought about this. The, the you're being allowed into the home of an artist, which is a privileged, previously withheld event um, yeah. in most cases. And then in some cases, like with Thomas Hershaw, you know, they might be incredibly famous artists. Mm. I don't know. That, that's a funny kind of power. It's, it's yeah, a, I mean... They're giving I, I thought it was nice, yeah. I mean, I, this is not something I really go into in the, in the piece, but I, I, I enjoyed that aspect of it. And I, it was a nice thing. I don't know if it's still... Uh, if we still have that feeling now, but certainly the first couple of months of the uh, of, of the lockdown here in the UK, uh, you know, there was quite a nice shared feeling of togetherness, and we're all in it together, and yeah, and, you know, um, a nice sense of community even across the world. And I think that might have faded away a bit now. Well, no, a bit. It, it, the change is interesting, isn't it? Because yeah. I mean, you said I think you know, as an artist, it was nice to see other artists in the same situation as yourself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Even Thomas Hershaw is stuck in his flat. You know, yeah. working on a bit of work yeah. on the floor. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. I mean, there are artists who, who use this kind of privileged video thing of showing themselves. Damien Hirst does it all the time of himself yeah. painting uh, to the point yeah. where actually I find it, I mean, I find the egotistical side of that. Yeah. How, how much of that have you watched, Matt? Well, no, I, exactly. I don't really. <laughs> it also demystifies the work to a point of quite. Yeah. Interesting. Quite interesting yeah. level, actually. Uh, moving on from there, so we've sort of done a bit of the positive with some of it, mm. a bit of a negative creeping in. I mean, you're, you're um, basically you're saying we're, in, we're enforced to be absent from gallery visiting. Yeah. And, and that's a critical thing in, in, the, in your piece, really, that the fact that the physical presence of the artwork is now absent. Yeah, I mean, I mean galleries are starting to open up now, but... But um, certainly where I am in Norwich, all the galleries shut down and were shut down for months. And in fact, I just went to see my first physical exhibition um, the other day, uh, about two weeks ago. And that's the first right. show I'd been to physically for a, a long uh, time, isn't it? Six months, yeah, yeah. In Norwich? Um, in Norwich, yeah. Yeah, so didn't even go that far, really. <laughs> it was at my studios. <laughs> I didn't go far at all. Ooh. But, you know, I, and I certainly, uh, you know, I'm not able to go on a train uh, to London right now. And, no. and, and things. I, I feel lucky in London because I can cycle. Yeah, two places. I, I, I have. I mean, I, I have to confess myself. I, I've been to Germany, Holland, Manchester, um, uh, Wales, yeah. uh, Bristol uh, in lockdown. So I'm afraid I'm observing strict hygiene procedures. Staying on my arse, really. But yeah, but this this kind of absence made me start to think about about the idea of presence again, and, and I wondered if I could think about what it what what it was that we were missing. Now. What is the thing? What is that magic or that that kind of intangible that intangible tangibility that we're not getting that we're not getting through the screen? Well, you also say we're not talking about presence. Well, we don't talk about presence. I mean, I don't know about you, but the students that I teach and the artists that I know, they're all really invested in the materials that they use. Yeah, the materials are important. They're a crucial part of, of artwork that they've made. But I think since, well, the last 40 years or so of, of criticism, I'll briefly talk about this uh, in the kind of the postmodern world, has really emphasised 
the, the interpretation of things, the meaning of things, uh, the image of things. And so if someone uses, um, for instance, think about, say, George Shaw, who uses um, like enamel paints, like hobbyists, air, aircraft, model aircraft making paints to paint his uh, paintings with. Um, that's important to the paintings, right? Um, and that's a, that's a key piece of his practice. And he always, it's always mentioned, oh, the artist use, uses like Humbrol enamel or, you know, sort of, uh, air, what's it called now? Airfix model um, yes, yes. paint. And that's a key part of interpreting his work. But we don't really talk about this this raw thing, this raw thing called uh, presence, and what like materials. What I'm getting at is materials are, are kind of used for their for their um, uh, their, their semiotic meaning, rather than or symbolic meaning, rather than the actual um, material nature of the material itself. If you if you go what I mean, yes. and, and to find that at the last time that was really important and talked about was back in the sixties, which is sort of where I, where I go back to in the, in the piece again, with things like uh, minimalist sculpture, uh, monaha, arte povera, those kind of um, uh, global art movements, which were really uh, interested in the, uh, the thingness of things, you know, what, what, a, what a pile of coal is like on the floor. So you might walk into a gallery and see a, see a pile of coal or a pile of sacks yeah. or a big, lump of, <laughs> a big lump of brick or a big lump of rock or something like that. Well, they, expanded, and, they expanded out of the traditional forms yeah. of art material, you know, paint and bronze yeah. and marble, didn't they? And, and so the specificness of what they were using was critical. It was political, yeah, well, yeah. in a way. Yeah, and the way I see it, it was a kind of a challenge to, to hierarchy, as a cha- challenge to tradition, and also a challenge to, um, to kind of to see the world fresh, you know, afresh, see the world anew. It, as if you're just seeing it for the first time. What do you make of this raw material? What do you make of this, the presence of this thing? Um, so that's why it was such an interesting, exciting, kind of emancipatory time uh, for, for art, especially sculpture um, back then. Uh, and it kind of led on to all sorts of other post-minimalist work, uh, which fed on and used that sense of uh, presence and that sense of, of needing to be there, needing to, to experience the actual thing. Yeah. So that was, I think that was, that was when presence was a real kind of uh, important critical term in art criticism. And do you think it's been forgotten more? I think it has, yeah. It's kind of, well, it's been sort of translated. It's turned into other things, yeah. But like I say, it's been, as I suggest, it's been taken over by postmodern criticism generally, which is fine. I don't have a problem with that. That's kind of my, my milieu, you know. That's where I sort of, um, uh, where I come from myself. Uh, but it's also been translated into other things. It's been translated into uh, discourses around the body generally, you know, in performance art, in um, feminist practice. Uh, and it's kind of diffused out across into all sorts of different media and all sorts of different types of artwork. But the word itself is no, isn't, isn't really used anymore, particularly. No. And I'm not saying we should bring it back. I'm not saying we should, you know, this is the only way to, to think about art. But especially when you can't experience it right now, I think it's interesting to think about. Yeah. Um, and then also there are, as I go on to later on, um, there are a lot of weird kind of a weird new things arising uh, from the dark, mysterious depths of the Internet about presence and about the body and about corporeality and about all that, all that kind of stuff, which is, which is, I don't know, for me, it's, it's kind of, what's the word? Not fascinating. It's interesting. Yeah. It's interesting, not particularly, um, uh, I don't know, 
alluring to me, but interesting as, as kind of a cultural phenomenon. Yeah, I mean, you know, Abramovich is mentioned and, and, and as somebody who, for instance, the, the presence of her. Yeah, yeah. All that that work was about, and it was called the artist was. present, wasn't it? Yeah, the artist is present. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's 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 become a real kind of seminal piece now, and, and really, I mean, I, I have great respect for her as an artist, um, and that piece was just really stripping it down to an encounter with the artist. Come and sit here. Yeah, sit across from me, and we'll we'll kind of meet. And yeah, that's got all sorts of sort of metaphysical, sort of spiritual dimensions as well. But she has got a long sort of practiced in meditation and in mm. you know in sort of esoteric um, techniques and things. And so she was kind of drawing on that. And I think that's kind of what gave that encounter a certain kind of power. But another part of it was just this this uh, sense of just being with another person, being with another human being. Yeah. So that performance couldn't go online and. Effect, effect or affect, I always get them mixed up, the person, yeah. the audience member. No, in the, it's in not the same, in, is it? It would be impossible for, you know, like yeah. you and I are sitting here now, yeah. looking at each other, it is nothing like the same as sitting in the same room doing this. That's and right. It, and yeah. if I was Marina Abramovich, it's, it, it wouldn't work for you like it did for no. people when you went to see her in real, actual life. And that's true of all live art, isn't it, really? You can see it, you can watch a film of it, but it's not the same. You don't have that charge, that kind of charge of, of being there. And that charge comes from all of your senses being engaged in the, in the room and the smell and the, the, the sound that you don't get through a loudspeaker. And it's, it comes from your, um, your kind of, uh, what's it called, proprioception, your sort of the sense of your body in space and how you're sitting and moving and how other people are moving. And, and it's a kind of a human psychological charge that comes from empathizing with another person another human being yeah but there's also the thing of 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 of, um when you are in a space with somebody actually or an actual artwork so say an actual richard serra that's looming over you the 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 weight of the metal that you can feel as a potential that might fall on you or potential that somebody might actually react to maria baravich in a way spontaneously whether it be positively or negatively, they can, you know, I can't react to you more than saying something really. Yes. That yeah. might offend you. Don't you mean I can't really? Yeah. That's one of the things I love about, about contemporary art is the way, the way I think of it is it's, it's uh, essentially, it's possible to make work and to, to enjoy other people's work in a really direct uh, unmediated way and it and it goes it kind of breaks out of any frame whatsoever so it might first of all you know it might break out of a it's gone beyond a picture frame it's gone beyond the space of a, a wall gone beyond the space of a room and it actually can go beyond even the, the idea of uh, being a kind of um, a, a discrete object or a contained thing so when you when you're looking at an artwork uh, witnessing an artwork which is an event or something happening it's um it's got that potential to, yeah, like you say, to go in any direction and you might react to it in any possible way. And it's really, very exciting. So, I mean, this word happening, it goes back to kind of the, the Alan Cabral happenings in, in a way. Yeah. A few years ago, I, I was involved in a project where we, we took a load of um, old instruction works, you know, pieces of work which say, do this, do that, and that's your work. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like a, like a Yoko Ono piece. So you sort of reenact. Uh, something yeah and we and and 
uh, we, um, this is myself and, and my mighty artist, RJ Henriksen, we, we um, enacted uh, 12 of those. And what was amazing was that on the page, they look very dry and cerebral and conceptual. But when you actually enact them and, and do something, right. they become the most incredibly rich and random experiences that you that you would never imagine. Yeah, yeah, and, and that that's that's a critical sort of example, isn't it, of the concept and the reality of being yeah. being different and the necessity of actually having to experience it. Exactly. You mentioned um, we, we have not a lot of time left. But the, you mentioned dance. Oh yeah. Um, and popular dance, and it's 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 being affected by online. And just as an example <laughs> yeah. of of a kind of, I mean, because you're not saying that you know you're not anti digital art or anything like that. It's yeah. just, but for instance, you say that dance now can be done almost restricted within the shape and yeah, it's changing. Yeah, yeah, the formats of of dance the, the, are changing. It's being affected in a really interesting way, and I haven't really seen anyone talk about this. Um, but it's yeah the way that for instance I'm, I'm talking about things like uh, TikTok or YouTube or uh, you know um, sort of influencers online um, what I noticed was that a lot of these people are performing a certain kind of choreography that is very much from the the waist up or the, from the from the shoulders up yeah using a lot of arms and it's focused around the head it's often to do with framing the face um, it's very, very short because these, these things have a very short time span, you know, it's like 16 seconds or a minute or something like that. Um, and it's a kind of a, a kind of a dance, which is not, uh, to do with the things which dance are traditionally about, which is kind of moving through space and the dynamism of the body and weight and gravity. And it's a much more kind of purely visual out, I, th I call it outwardly directed, I think, experience. Um, and it's all because of these constraints of the, of the computer screen or constraints of the phone screen. So you have to do something which is going to fit within that rectangle yeah. and it's very much around your own face. But it's the importance of the image, in a yeah. sense, dominance of the importance of the image, which this yeah. is COVID has exaggerated the reliance on maybe. Yeah. Um, that, that's led to this concentration by the artists and dancers. I thought that was just a really interesting phenomenon. And, and I, see, I see kids doing this. I see kids on the street doing these weird little movements and dances. It's a really kind of a strange new sort of pop cultural phenomenon. Yeah. Um, like, for instance, do you remember, I don't know if you're aware of dabbing. Have you ever heard of dabbing? Do you remember dabbing? Well, you, you talk about something about voguing. I talk about voguing from the 80s. Dabbing's a bit more I don't recent. Know what dabbing dabbing was, a, was a craze in, amongst kids. Uh, a few years ago now, maybe four or five years ago, uh, and it, it been, <laughs> how, how can I describe this on the Art Monthly Talk Show? Essentially, it uh, it involves moving your your head into your elbow, yeah, lifting up your arm and like kind of waving your arms quickly. It's just a, it's over in a split second, right? But this was this was crazy. This went around the world. I, I remember seeing kids in the audience of the Olympics doing it, and it was totally international. This movement. It came, it came from the uh, sort of a, uh, Southern American hip hop, I think, from a video. Right. But it just went totally viral. Uh, Did you do all your primary school kids? Um, yeah. Copying the, the, I can't remember exactly what you said, but there's like a sort of animated computer game figure. Yeah. When something's waiting to do something, but isn't actually doing anything, rather than it sitting still, it, it moves a bit. That's and right. They were, they were copying the movements of these sort of 
silent, waiting, animated. That's right. Well, in part of my kind of thinking about how presence and corporeality and the body is being affected by the online world, this is one of the things which kind of occurred to me that I was seeing as a parent, I was seeing in the school playground, um, these kids essentially copying animated characters from computer games. So they, they were copying these weird little idle uh, animations or these little loops which are meant to make the, uh, the animated characters look realistic. Uh, and so you had this very weird, uncanny phenomenon of, of kind of like a, a seven-year-old copying an animation that's been made by God knows who, God knows where, somewhere around the world, which was, was meant itself meant to replicate the idea of a natural human behavior. So it's like a, it's, it's really a question of act, you know, learning to act natural through the mediation of a computer game, yeah. which is, I think, a pretty bizarre phenomenon. I mean, I, I, I quite like it. I quite like the, the bizarreness of it. It's inevitable that, that children will emulate. Yeah. Like this, because, you know, we would have emulated something else. Like, right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But what's interesting is that it's, it really becomes something which, which kind of colonizes the body, colonizes the human body. Yeah. Uh, so I write about um, this essay by Marcel Mauss from the 30s, Techniques of the Body, which has been interesting to me for a long time, this essay. And he writes about the different ways in which we learn to do everyday acts, which we consider to be normal things like sitting down or leaning. You know, yeah. How do you lean? How do you sit? And, and his point is that these are not natural, inherent human behaviours, but they are learnt cultural yeah. behaviours. Yeah. And, and every country does them differently and every area around the world will do them differently. And yeah. so I think you can see this kind of learnt behaviour uh, in, in a very similar way now, yeah. yeah. And the same with things like, well, I talk about some of the dances from Fortnite, which I won't <laughs> go into now, but they're, again, a very quick kind of rapid-fire choreography, which is designed for an animated computer game character, but now it's being picked up by like 10-year-olds around the world and in the playground, and they're doing these crazy yeah. orange justice dances and God knows what. It's very interesting. I, 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 like, I must read out the last, we're going to finish now, but I will just read right. out the last sentence. What is really missing is the opportunity to feel ourselves reflected back by the work. We've been missing the experience of ourselves. And um, I, I, like, I like, well, I say I like it. It's <laughs> in a way. <laughs> okay, well, it just it really struck me. And it, and it was interesting when I went to see this, because I'd written the piece, and then I, then I got this chance to see this show uh, the other day in Norwich. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I kind of tested that out for myself and it was true. I, I, I felt myself in the gallery. I felt myself moving around these sculptures and this wall painting. And it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was fascinating to, to feel that. And that was a feeling that I hadn't had for a while. Yeah, and sometimes these feelings can fade away quietly. Yeah. And people don't notice what they haven't got anymore. That's yeah, and I, and I think there is a, I mean, there's a political point to this. We haven't really talked about that, but there's a political aspect of this, which is that I really believe that that uh, embodiment is important, and I think it's uh, empowering, and I think it kind of helps the individual to uh, resist some of the forces uh, that are that are trying to colonise us. Yeah, and certainly to, to to know means you can choose. Yeah, what what you decide is important to you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the program. Um, this has been Mark Wilshire talking um, about his feature in the October 2020 issue of Art Monthly. I'm Matt Hale, bringing you the Art Monthly talk show. Do listen again, and um, we look forward to when you do. They're all available 
as podcasts on the Art Monthly website as well, www.artmonthly.co.uk. You just click on the events button on the homepage and then there's an archive going back. I hate to think how many years. It's probably 10, but it's actually maybe more. Anyway, lots and lots. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Mark. Goodbye.